0: to get that deal, and let's get on with the show. What does Hollywood churches, businesses, and yes, even Satanists all have in common with respect to the news cycle this last week? Well, they are all weighing in on the Texas heartbeat bill, which recently passed significantly restricting access to abortion. Everybody seems to have an opinion on this. There's a lot of different arguments flying around the internet, and we're going to address those today on this episode of Making the Argument, where we make the arguments that help defend a free society. Okay, nothing would be easier when you see a headline that talks about Satanists weighing in to the Texas abortion law from a religious freedom perspective than to kind of sit back, get sarcastic, and and essentially just tear away at this, uh, being as glib as possible. But here's what I think is really important. We need to do a better job. For those of us that believe in the pro-life position. We have to do a better job of making the argument for why we believe what we believe. And I'm not talking about just preaching to the choir. And I'm not talking about creating a bunch of straw man arguments with respect to the pro-choice or pro-abortion movement. I'm talking about systematically looking at their arguments and the narratives that they put together in order to defend this position. And then taking a look at what has been successful with respect to what they talk about and then by the same token, being a little bit introspective on our own argumentation. How have we responded to the various claims that are made? How have we responded to the various concerns that are brought up? Have we done an effective job? And I think in certain areas, you could say yes. In a lot of era, other areas, I think we'd have to come to the honest conclusion that we have not. And ultimately, if you believe this issue is important, and I certainly do. In fact, if you look a lot of political issues that we debate around there, you know, the, a 1% increase on in the marginal tax rate, that's important. Is it as important as the abortion uh, issue? I would say it isn't, and so we actually owe it. If we're serious about this, it's not good enough to simply engage in in sarcasm or vitriol or nothing more than righteous indignation. It is important to properly understand the arguments that are being used to support abortion, the abortion industry, and access to abortion, and then to be able to refine our own argumentation, not just so that we're, we're preaching to the choir and convincing people that are already convinced, but how do we do so in a way that actually conveys the underlying principles that we're trying to discuss. And so that's what we're gonna go into. So segment one here, we're gonna be talking about what is the argument from the left-wing perspective on abortion. And again, the goal here is not to caricature that argument. Um, I I wanna present the argument that they give to us in as honest a fashion as, as I possibly can. So let's go ahead and start off with a story. So I want you to imagine Um, A young woman that, you know, maybe comes from a difficult background, um, has faced trials, tribulations, but nevertheless has has worked incredibly hard all throughout high school, helped support her family. Uh, Father gets sick. She actually has to graduate early and take on a job so she can help pay medical bills. And then she goes off to college where she has a scholarship to be a nurse. And as she's, she's working through this process at a Bible college, she gets pregnant now obviously she knew what she was doing but i think all of us can can sympathize that this is a young woman that has worked incredibly hard in in order to try to not only help herself but help her family and now she finds herself in a situation where her entire future every plan that she had meticulously laid out for herself in order to improve her situation and her family's situation All of that is now being disrupted because of one action. And that is one of the typical narratives that you hear when we discuss the abortion issue. And what I think is important about this is that what is taking place as I'm explaining that story to you is that all of us should feel sympathy for that young woman. That's not to say you have to agree or disagree with particular actions or whatever took place. It doesn't mean you have to give up, you know, a sense of personal responsibility or obligations or, or whatnot. It's a question of can't we all agree that in that particular scenario, we understand that something happened that is now going to completely alter this, this young woman's life for the rest of her life, whatever she had planned that is going to be put on hold or it's going to be significantly altered or or she may even risk all of it as a result of the pregnancy. And if you look at the various arguments that are made in order to support the idea of women having access to abortion services, there's a whole host of arguments that are made, but that, that narrative, that idea of generating sympathy for one of the people involved in this decision, is absolutely critical to how the left sets up the discussion. And what I want you to understand is, is that you may be tempted to say, oh, well, that's just a trick or that's just an appeal to emotion. Okay, there may be components of that for some people, but for other people, this is a real-life decision that they are forced into or, or, again, put into as a result maybe of their own decisions. And there is nothing wrong with the other side of the debate Bringing this up is, what do you do in this scenario? How do you address this in a way that, that hopefully preserves this young woman's attempt to make her way in the world, right? They're not cheating when they make that argument. They're not cheating when they share that narrative because it's real. And most of us can sympathize with that because we know someone that may have been under, in similar circumstances. In some cases, maybe it was even worse. And so the first thing I want us to understand is, as we wade into this discussion, is that when someone brings up the very real world consequences and and attempts to elicit sympathy for someone that finds themselves in this situation, our first response should not be to just completely discount it. Our our first response should not be to say, "Well, well, that's not important, because it is. It is important. And what we're going to go into next is we're going to talk about what are the different arguments that we see the left using ostensibly to support this young woman, right? To show up on her behalf and and make various arguments for why this woman should, or at least should have the option to opt for abortion under these circumstances. So let's go into some of those, these arguments, because ultimately there's an underlying principle, there's an underlying conflict that has to be addressed and they have to produce arguments to be able to convince us to do something that we know is not naturally intuitive. I think any one of us that, that values human life, and, I, and I, I think that almost everyone I know, maybe with a few possible exceptions, genuinely values human life for its own sake. And in abortion, we're, we're essentially talking about the destruction of human life. And so they develop arguments to try to justify this process for the purpose of standing by supporting or advocating on behalf of the young woman that we've just described in our scenario. So let's look at one of the first arguments that that was very very popular and is still used and that's the idea that it's just a clump of cells that when a baby is is in the womb especially like right after conception first couple of weeks all we're talking about is, a, is a, clump of, a clump of cells, basically something you would see in a petri dish. And the generalized argument is that you can't put that out on par with a, the, the mother herself. right? So there, there's a difference. There's a distinction that's being made. And the attempt here is to justify this by essentially devaluation of the fetus. So it's to suggest the fetus is something other than an innocent human being. Because again, we all, we all recognize that if it is an innocent human being, if we accept that premise, then we're already conflicted with whether or not it would be appropriate to destroy innocent human life. So one of the first arguments that you see is it's just a clump of cells, suggesting that it's not a real human being. Okay? Another argument that you see is it's a parasite. Right? And this is, this is another one of those arguments where if we look at what we consider to be parasitic, right, something that is essentially using a host to survive, this, this also gives this impression, and, and there's this kind of superficial plausibility with respect to a fetus in the womb, because obviously the fetus does rely on the woman's body for survival and sustenance. Right? It absolutely requires it. And so there's this, this correlation made between a fetus in the womb and a parasite. Now, again, this is another justification by devaluation. You're essentially saying that these two things, even if you concede that it's human in nature, that the very nature of the relationship is parasitic. So now we went from the first argument saying that in one case we have a human and in another case we don't have a human. The second argument is a little bit different. They may be conceding that there is some element of human life, but it's actually parasitic upon the mother, and so the relationship structure is very very different than what we normally associate with a pregnant woman. Another argument that you will see is, okay, maybe it's a baby, but it's not sentient. Okay, this is a this is another argument which is sens- to uh, essentially attempts to otherize, right? So again, that whole devaluation concept is to say that, okay, maybe I concede that it's human life. Maybe I concede that it's not parasitical in nature, uh, but but ultimately it doesn't rise at the same level of human life once a child is born. And we use sentience or they use sentience as a way to justify the distinction between a baby in the womb and a baby outside the womb. And sentience is, there, there's, there's kind of some, some conflict with respect to a proper definition of it, but a lot of it is, is the ability to have feelings, to feel pain. Um, it, it's In some ways, it's synonymous with consciousness. Okay, And so what they're essentially saying is that the value of humanity is inextricably tied to sentience. And provided that the fetus does not have sentience at whatever stage then at that point, we don't have to look at it as a human being the same way that we would the mother or another person that's already been born, all right? We have a fourth argument that really fell out of favor about, I don't know, 30, 40 years ago, but since then has started to see a resurgence. And that is the argument from a eugenics standpoint. And that is essentially to say that, well, with everything that's going on in the world um, a, a child that would have been otherwise aborted, if, if you allow that child to be born, then it's gonna b- uh, be born into an environment where maybe it won't be loved or maybe its economic options uh, will not be the same and so it'll be living in poverty. You get the same argument on, from a eugenics standpoint where it's a child might be born with severe mental or physical deformities or difficulties and so therefore their quality of life will not be as good and so essentially it is an act of mercy both to the child and to society in general to not allow it to be born. That's, that's the kind of the argument from eugenics, that from a societal standpoint, from the quality of life of the child, you're actually doing uh, a mercy by aborting the child. Right? That's the fourth argument. The fifth argument, which has continually gained in prominence and even more so lately, is the idea that this is about fighting for women's rights. Okay, and so this is the, the justification for like female empowerment or fighting against uh, misogyny. And what this essentially comes down to is, um, it, you know, it, it's, it's a sympathetic argument in a couple of ways. One way is I think most of us acknowledge that for the majority of human history, uh, women have not done as well as men in the overall social power structure, right? So women were, were limited by sometimes legal statutes, sometimes by social norms. Um, in some cases and situations, they could be seen as almost like uh, an elevated form of property uh, in some societies, even after slavery went away. Their, their rights and their ability to participate in society was, was limited. And one of the things that was associated with that limiting capability was the fact that uniquely women get pregnant, men do not get pregnant. I, I know that's not exactly the arguments being made now, but biologically, that's a fact. And so there was this idea that how dare a man... Uh, essentially pass laws or opine on a situation that is, is unique to women with respect to pregnancy. Right there, There is no biological male that is ever going to know what it is like to be pregnant or to be in a situation where a pregnancy could literally alter the rest of your life in the same way that it does a woman. And so this idea of a woman being able to have control not only over her own body but her own sexual life was seen as a key component of female empowerment. And so the idea of removing abortion as an option is seen as something which uniquely limits women but does not limit men. And so, therefore, it is closely connected to the idea of female empowerment. Okay. So these are five of some of the most common arguments that are used, again, as a way to advocate for that woman that finds themselves in the situation where they're not sure if they actually want to bring a child to term. And... What you're going to find within each of those arguments is there's, there's an underlying proposition within these, these arguments or within this overall narrative. And that proposition kind of takes on two components. One is it's the framing of the debate as if if you oppose these things, you either don't understand biology or you don't understand science or um, you're n- uniquely misogynistic or unsympathetic to the plight of the mother. Right, So they've created this paradigm where every time you attack one of those arguments, regardless of the way that you address that argument, you are seen as either being unscientific or unsympathetic to the mother. And as we discussed initially, you know, why is it necessary to go through this entire process? Why is it necessary to have multiple different arguments for this if abortion is just something you should have access to? And what we're going to go into next is going to be some of the conservative responses to this because you have to understand that the underlying issue here is 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 actually quite simple and that is when is it justified to destroy innocent human life? When is it justified to do that? So that's why you see these multiple arguments with different attempts of justification one is women's empowerment one is the idea of trying to otherize the fetus is to suggest that it's not fully human or that it's just a a clump of cells you know that's that's why you see the nature of those arguments because we're trying to contend with this underlying idea that most of us have which is you should not destroy innocent human life okay so how does the pro-life movement traditionally respond to this well I don't want to paint with too broad a brush here, but I do think it's fair to say that there have been two types of arguments that are, let's just say, not exactly helpful if you believe in advocating the the pro-life movement or the the pro-life philosophy. One argument that you see sometimes coming from the right, whether it be elected officials or people within the political consulting class or whatnot, is to essentially say that you're pro-life, but to avoid the issue at all costs. And you see this a lot with people that, um, you know, they might say that they're personally pro-life or they might, uh, you know, make the argument that, yeah, I'm pro-life, but this isn't an issue that we should talk about or it's not an issue that we should focus a lot of attention on um, because bottom line is it's going to cost us elections. And and what that argument essentially is, is an acknowledgement on their part that they think they have lost the overall narrative. So they essentially believe that the paradigm that has been created, this idea that if you're pro-life, you are you are engaging in this either-or proposition where it's either the child or the mother. And then from a the political math standpoint, the mother can vote and the child can't. So which direction are you going to go? And that's why you see some people... Uh, on the pro-life movement that will claim to be pro-life but they're not interested in actually getting engaged in this environment because they think it's too politically hot and that it's gonna do more damage to other issues that they think are equally or perhaps even more important and so they avoid the issue altogether. There's another side of the pro-life movement that interestingly enough still accepts the paradigm that essentially the pro-abortion movement has, has created. And again, that's this idea that at the very least, this is a question of you're either on the side of the mother or you're on the side of the child. And the argument that a lot of pro-lifers make on that side is essentially to say that, okay, we accept that, but hey, the woman knew what she was doing. Or you know, even, though, um, even though we may sympathize with the woman in that situation, the bottom line is, is that's a child and you don't get to kill people. And you'll you'll see a lot of you'll you'll see a lot of argumentation from that side where they're essentially doing an appeal, which is also heavily focused on emotion. You'll you'll see the, the placards and stuff like that with maybe pictures of aborted fetuses. Um, and, and in some ways that that moral indignation, I'm not saying it's unjustified. The the question is, is that in, in which scenarios does that potentially help your argument, and in which scenarios does that potentially hurt your argument? Because, again, the whole point of this should be how do we properly understand where the pro, uh, pro-choice side is coming from in this narrative and how do we do the best job possible of convincing people that are willing to be convinced that, that the pro-life approach to this issue is the appropriate one morally and practically. Okay, so, again, you've, you've got these two types of, of conservative approaches to the pro-life or to, or to the, uh, the pro-choice movement. One is to you know, kind of superficially say that you're pro-life, but to ignore the issue at all costs. The other one is to go more of a hardcore route. Um, and, and in some ways, you know, again, it, it, it might not be incorrect from a moral perspective, but sometimes it can, it can get us into a situation where we're alienating people that we could potentially convince. So that all begs the question, how do we make effective arguments where people that are willing to give us a hearing, obviously there's gonna be some people that have completely made up their minds and maybe they're not very interested in hearing any sort of counter perspective on the issue of abortion, but there's a lot of other people out there that are at least willing to give you a hearing, have some questions, maybe they'll use some of the arguments that we already addressed, and your question is, how do you effectively engage in a discussion with someone that is willing to listen without allowing offense and tribalism and otherization to immediately destroy the conversation. And that's what we're gonna go over next. The first thing that we have to understand here is that you have to be aware of the paradigm that's been created, right? The the pro-lifer versus the mother. But you can't accept it. Now, when I say you have to be aware of that, what I mean is you have to understand that a lot of people that are making some of the pro-choice arguments that we've heard are doing it in part and are engaging in discussion because they have a mindset about who you are, what you believe, and what you care about. And if you immediately if you immediately operate within their paradigm with one what they've already accepted as true without first defining your terms or explaining where your heart is truly at, you will find yourself skipping from one argument to another argument to another argument without any getting without getting any sort of real resolution. Or or talking about something where somebody is in a position to actually hear your perspective and listen to what you have to say. And so one of the first things that you have to do, in my opinion, is make sure that you're establishing some sort of common framework, not just in the technical aspect of defining your terms, what constitutes human life versus, you know, what is, you know, other types of life or non-life, right? What constitutes murder versus infanticide, you know, et cetera you really have to get into the idea of saying, look, if you think my goal here is to protect the infant until it's born, and that, that someone doesn't really care about the plight of the mother or the difficulty of the decision or the, or the circumstances or the consequences that she may go with in order to carry that child to term, if that's who you think I am, let me assure you I am not. That this is, this is, not, an, this is not an exercise in trying to save the child at the expense of the mother. This is an exercise on how do we save both. And it is so important that someone that you were talking to understands that that is where your heart is at, that that is your intention, and that you are willing to work with them in order to get to a place where we can achieve that. The goal is how do we preserve life? And then how do we also ensure that that life has an opportunity to flourish? That's the goal. It's not just a legal battle. It's not just about proving how smart you are in a debate. It's about understanding that there are very real consequences for that young woman that I described if you win the legal argument. And how are you going to address that? How are you going to address the very real concern that many women have That this represents a loss of control for them over their own bodies in a way that a man could never understand. And if you're not willing to address that, or if you're not willing to make that a part of the overall solution that you're offering, don't expect to get much of a hearing. So how do we do that? Well, the first part, I already explained. You, you You have to talk about where you're coming from and what your motivation is. The next part is, is that you have to be prepared for different entry points into the conversation. So there's multiple different ways that people can approach this topic when it comes up. And I will tell you that one of the most important things you can do up front, along with assuring someone on, on where your intentions are is asking questions before you get into making a bunch of philosophical, moral, or, or scientific arguments. One of the most powerful things you can do when somebody presents an argument is to say, why do you believe that? Because one of the things that you will notice with an issue like abortion is that a lot of times there is a thin intellectual veneer that is being used to cover up a lot of personal pain associated with whatever it is you're talking about. And if you're not willing to dig in a little bit and and try to understand what someone else might have gone through either themselves or somebody that was very close to them, the moment you start just coming up with these really slick arguments to shut them down, they don't feel like you're attacking their arguments, they feel like you're attacking them. They feel like you are morally judging them. And they may already be dealing with this internally and you adding on to it is not putting them in a position to be able to hear what it is you really believe in. So let's, let's talk about a couple of things from those perspectives, so establishing what your goal is, and, and finding that common ground, and then also asking enough questions so that you can understand, you can get a little bit more understanding of where someone is coming from on this debate because a lot of times it is far more personal than you think. This is one of those issues. The reason why it's so controversial is because it has touched so many people on a personal level and when you treat it like nothing more than an academic contest then chances are you're gonna make an argument not designed to convince somebody or to genuinely share your concerns or perspective, but merely to make them feel stupid about what they believe, and on this topic, it may be making them feel shame and guilt about something that has happened, and that is going to get a response that is not going to be conducive for a good discussion. So you do those two things, and then you get into the discussion, and it comes up, right? It's just a clump of cells. Now, this is another good area to say, okay, well, why do you believe that? Do you believe that that is a scientific approach to this particular issue, right? Ask them a question. Why do you believe it's just a clump of cells? Or specifically, what makes you not a clump of cells? Like, what is the distinction between the baby in the womb and you outside the womb where one is a clump of cells and one is not a clump of cells? Make them explain where they're coming from on this issue. The other thing to point out here, is that when we look at scientific criteria, and one thing that you will find on the left is that ostensibly there, there is a respect for the scientific method. Now, we can argue all day long on whether we think that's evenly applied across other issues. That's not the point here. The bottom line is I have yet to meet someone on the left or someone on the pro-abortion side that doesn't at least pay some sort of homage to the idea of science and the scientific method as being a way that we can arrive at logical conclusions about physical reality. So, great. Enter in with that, like, do you know what the scientific criteria are for distinguishing between life and non-life, human life and non-human life? Because we do use criteria, things like growth, reproductive capacity, homeostasis, the ability to turn inner, or, uh, food and, and other things into energy. These are all different characteristics that we look for when we're distinguishing between something that is living versus something that is not living. Now, what about when we're making distinctions between human life and other forms of life, right? A, a, a dog versus a, a boy or a girl. Well, we look at things like deoxyribonucleic acid, right? DNA. Right? There is a very specific genetic code for a dog that makes it a dog along with all the other characteristics. And there's a very specific genetic code that makes something human along with the other characteristics. And so the question from a scientific standpoint, when someone is saying it's just a lump of cells, is to say, okay, well, by what scientific criteria are we determining this? And once you do that, what you recognize is that at the moment of conception, the the fetus has all of the characteristics that distinguish between human life and non-human life. So from a scientific perspective, there is no question. There's been a lot of time, effort, and money spent mapping the human genome. And I can tell you right now that you are not going to pick up any sort of textbook on biology, any sort of modern one on biology or something, that is going to tell you that in the womb, that is anything other than human life. It meets the characteristics of life, and it meets the characteristics for being human. It is merely at its earliest stage of development. So... That's one of the ways to address this idea that it's just a clump of cells is that this is actually verifiably false. And if they're going to insist on that line of reasoning, then it might be important to bring evidence to demonstrate that this cannot be true. Because if it is true, then we have to completely rethink, you would would have to completely throw out all of the scientific criteria that we use when we're analyzing other biological or non-biological life or or non-life. A biological life or, or, um, or non-biological. So that's really important. Sorry, all biology is life. Anyway, the second component is this. This is when you get into the other argument. Okay, well, maybe they, maybe they concede the fact that it is human life, but it essentially has a parasitic relationship with the mother. Again, this is the part where instead of just ramming home your argument, you look back and you say, do you understand the definition of what a parasite is? Because again, we have very specific scientific criteria that we use to distinguish between a parasitic relationship and a non-parasitic relationship. And what's interesting there is that when you look at all the criteria, a baby does not meet the scientific criteria for being a parasite. It simply does not. And so again, there's this superficial plausibility that okay, when you have a tapeworm inside you it's dependent upon your body within that environment in order to sustain itself. And when you have a child in the womb, it's dependent upon the one of body. So therefore, that's similar. Well, again, this is a logical fallacy. It's saying that because two things may be similar in one respect, that therefore they are the same thing. And that's logically fallacious. And so when you can make the argument that, well, no, from a scientific perspective, this doesn't meet the characteristics of a parasite. And so that, that argument doesn't work. Now, again, they're going to do one of two things. They're either going to accept that and try to move on to something else or they're going to insist upon it. And at some point, if if someone is willing to insist upon something which is verifiably false, again, it's time to dig in a little bit deeper because, again, there there might be a thin, you know, thin intellectual veneer covering up a whole lot of pain, right? That, That there's some sort of emotional commitment to a particular argument that allows them to continue to believe something even when you demonstrated that it is scientifically or evidentially false. Right, And then sometimes that will lead into the next argument, right? So we've established that it is human life. We've established scientifically that it's not parasitic. The next thing that you often hear is this idea that, okay, well, maybe it's human life, but it's not sentient, right? Or, or it hasn't achieved a level of consciousness that is sufficient to put it on level with other forms of human life. The problem here now, just kind of like with the, with the parasitic argument, is, is that we've, we're now making these sort of distinctions that have a lot of consequences if we accept them. So if you're willing to say that when somebody is not sentient, therefore they do not possess the same degree of value, this causes a whole host of problems for people that might be in a coma or the level of sentience that you actively possess at a given time when you're asleep. There's a whole whole host of various things with respect to consciousness that can be affected either by your environment, by drugs, by uh, traumatic events, uh, by medical conditions, where the level of sentience sentience or consciousness that you possess is not on par with other people. Does that mean you are now degraded in your overall value? Is your humanity devalued as a result of that? Because if, if that is the argument that you are willing to accept for abortion, then theoretically you would have to accept that argument for a whole host of other situations that you're probably not willing to accept. And in logic... We call this a reductio ad absurdum. It's the idea of reducing the other person's argument to absurdity. Now, again, I'm not suggesting you do this in a mean or harsh manner, but it's important to point out that if they're willing to use the sentience argument, then that is going that brings with it a whole host of baggage that they're probably not willing to accept. And it's important to point out that baggage because then you put them on the horns of a dilemma. They're going to have to accept that if they're willing to if they're willing to destroy innocent human life in the womb because of a question of sentience, then there's a whole host of people that have already been born that can now also be arbitrarily killed as a result of their sentience or consciousness not rising to the same level as somebody else. And that is some very, very dangerous territory, which leads me into our fourth argument. That fourth argument being is that, that argument from eugenics, the idea that if you don't allow for abortion then you potentially end up in a situation where there are negative consequences, both for, not only for the mother and the child, but also potentially negative consequences for society. So there was an interesting book called Freakonomics, where they were trying to look behind some of these other, you know, um, they they were trying to go beyond some of the easy policy arguments with respect to economic behavior and people um, interacting uh, through transactions within the economy and socially. And one of the conclusions they came to was this idea that, Without abortion, you would have had a lot more children being born into potentially impoverished homes or abusive environments. And statistically speaking, children coming from abusive environments with a lot of poverty or perhaps one-parent homes, statistically speaking, this is not a referendum on one-parent homes, um, or suggesting that everyone is in that situation is going to go to jail. But there is, a higher, there is a much higher degree of probability that someone coming from that sort of environment is going to run into social issues, educational issues, economic issues, and then run afoul of the criminal justice system. And so Freakonomics was making an argument that without abortion, you potentially run into a scenario where you have a lot more children being born into adverse conditions that is bad both for the child and is bad for society in general. And that was an argument that they were making in favor of women having access to abortion. Another argument that you see is one that says that significant mental or physical deformities, which will on some level decrease the quality of life for the child, means that aborting the child is actually a mercy that you are conveying, right? That's the type of argument that is being made when we see this kind of eugenic style argument, that it's, it's no longer a question of whether or not it's a child, they acknowledge it's a child. Now the question becomes, Is it better for not only society, but that child, to abort the child? And the problem that you get into with this argument is the the larger moral narrative. Because someone actually did a very effective response to the proposition that was put forth in Freakonomics. Again, Freakonomics' argument was that without abortion, more children would have been born into dangerous and abusive environments. And the probability that those children would have then grown up to either be impoverished themselves, abuses themselves, or engage in some other criminal activity would have gone up. And so with abortion, they were able to prevent that. The response that came in actually demonstrated that you didn't have an overall decrease with respect to the number of children that were born into abusive relationships. In fact, the number of children that were growing up in single-parent homes or in environments where you didn't have a, a positive male or fe- both a, a male and female role model or a two-parent home of some kind, um, that actually increased and it increased exponentially. And one of the things they offered as reasons for that is that when there was when you essentially uh, removed the stigma associated with having a child when you were not prepared to have the child, you might have had more abortions but you still had more pregnancies which actually resulted in births as well and to suggest that um, because abortion was legal and somebody maybe they aborted two or three or four children but they they had one or they kept two or whatever it was um that that therefore their own attitude wouldn't have changed if you had said that you're not allowed to have abortion because if they weren't allowed to have abortion They may have been more selective with respect to their own behavior. Maybe they would have been more careful about using protection. At the same time, you also had government policies coming in that essentially said that if you have a child and there is no man in the home, you can get additional benefits as a result. And so now having children out of wedlock actually became something that was a way to be able to get additional funds for your family. And so there was a a perverse incentive created there. So not only did Freakonomics not properly, you know, it it, it attempted to make this argument, but then it failed when you actually dug into the data. But there is a a huge moral problem with the argument, which is to say that those of us who are living are able to now project out onto another person what we think their life will be like, and then we can essentially end their life and use that to, and, and again, with the justification that we're benefiting society and that child. That is, I I would say that is a very scary proposition. When when we start to put ourselves in the position of saying that because your circumstances will not be ideal, therefore we can kill you. Again, there is a whole host of baggage that comes with that logic that I don't think the other side is going to want to fully embrace. Because it begs the question of where officially is the line then? And if and if you don't think people have made the argument that you should be able to quote abort your child up to the age of two, I would tell you that you're wrong. They've seen uh, sociologists do it in Australia. In fact, I think it was the, the head of the uh, Yale's ethicist department um, who actually said that you should be able to essentially euthanize your child up to the age of two. Now you may look at that and think that's horrific, but honestly, he was making an intellectually consistent argument. If you believe that the only way value is conveyed onto a child is that if the rest of society, or at least the mother, conveys that value to them. If the value that they have is not inherent as a result of them being a human being and therefore deserving of an opportunity to be able to live their life, even if that means having to overcome significant circumstances and challenges. If now other people, whether it be the mother or society in general, can now decide for that child whether or not they get to live or die, and then suggest that they are doing something that is not only perhaps beneficial for them on a practical level, but actually noble, that is some very scary territory. Because the question becomes is, when are you no longer permitted to do that? And as much as we might, as much as we might like to delude ourselves into thinking that we would never allow something like that to get out of hand, I would argue that the 20th century provides ample examples We're talking about societies that have gone through the Enlightenment that have decided that that sort of logic was going to apply to people based off of their race, based off of their skin color, based off of their mental capacity, based off a whole host of other issues where they allowed themselves to believe that it was okay, that it was morally justifiable, that it was better off for everyone involved if they got to decide who lived and who died. So we need to make sure that when we, they make this sort of argument from eugenics, that they're willing to accept all of the other baggage that comes with it. Because if they are, that is a very terrifying proposition. And this leads us into our fifth and final argument. And that is the idea that what this is really about is empowering women. This is about fighting for women's rights, women's health care, and women to be able to be in control of their own body. And one of the most common arguments that you hear for this is the concept of my body my choice. And I I don't know how many times I've gotten in, in debates with respect to abortion. And I think almost every single time this argument has come up. And the reason why it has come up is because ultimately, if you're someone that believes in individual liberty, if you're someone that believes that you as a person have ownership over your own body and that other people should not violate the sanctity of your body, this can be a very, again, superficially convincing argument. But here's why the whole narrative of my body, my choice is actually probably the worst argument that a pro-choicer can make, because if you actually dig into the philosophy behind that statement, it is self-defeating for the pro-choice movement, and here's why. When you say, my body, my choice, you are assuming certain things about human nature, because you could just as easily come back and say, well, gosh, throughout a great deal of human history, it was not your body, your choice. There, there were different power structures, there were different political arrangements, there were different hierarchies which gave other people control over your body. So why are you now making this argument, my body, my choice, when in human history we see the alternative or we see alternatives being played out? And, and the argument that someone inevitably makes is they say, well because we've rejected that, is because we, we've recognized that bodily autonomy and having control and ownership of your person is fundamental to human nature. And and we see this not only from social arrangements where people benefit from the idea that they have unique ownership over their body, we also see it within religious texts. We see it in this this overriding moral consensus within society that you are uniquely you, you have inherent value by the, the very nature of being a human being, and that you should be able to have control over yourself. And anybody attempting to come in and violate that sanctity is in the wrong. They're the ones that are committing a violent or aggressive act against you and in that case you have the right to defend yourself. Right. So when you say my body, my choice, you're essentially, that is the argument that you're making is that as a human being I have inherent worth, I have ownership of my body, and for anyone to come in and violate that is ultimately an infringement on one of my bo- most basic human rights. And a lot of times when you're arguing with somebody, they'll say, absolutely, that's what I think. So the question that you have to ask back is, and when does your ownership over your body, when does that inherent worth that you were appealing to, when does that begin? Because if it just begins after you're born, then what you're saying is all of the characteristics that you had that made you human life, all of those things existed in the womb. Why don't they count then? Why do they only count after you're born? And that is a real problem for them because the the very fundamental level of the my body, my choice argument presupposes things which defeats the very argument for abortion. Now, sometimes you will see someone try to sneak back into that parasitic argument. They'll say, well, no, this is different because that that baby is imposing itself on the woman's body. But here's what's interesting about the my body, my choice component. If you come up and hit me, I'm allowed to defend myself. If you do something that directly puts me in peril, I'm permitted to defend myself from the aggressive action that you've taken. Whatever action that you have taken that has put me in this position, because it's my body, because it's my choice, I have the right to defend myself. So the question is, is in the event of a pregnancy, what is taking place? Now obviously we know there's, there's cases of, of rape where now a woman is in a position where someone has imposed themselves on her But the vast majority of cases with abortion are not as a result of rape, it is a choice of two people engaging voluntarily in an activity that they know can bring about another human life. And here's the other component of my body, my choice. If it's my body and my choice and I choose to do something, then I'm also responsible for my actions. Because if I'm not responsible for my actions, then can I really make the argument that it was entirely my body? I mean, if someone else has to pay the price for my actions, I'm now violating their sovereignty as an individual. I'm now violating the sanctity of their humanity. Because now I'm requiring them to pay a price as a result of my actions. And after all, if it was my body, my choice, then assuming responsibility for the actions, especially those actions that I knew could take place as a result of my decisions then what right do I now have to impose my will on the child that was, voluntar- was brought into existence as a result of voluntary actions? You're going to find that in every other issue of law, of every other issue of social interaction, we do not punish an innocent third party because of the voluntary actions of somebody else. So it's important that when somebody attempts to use that argument You need to dig down into the presuppositions. The underlying philosophy that they are appealing to in order to make that argument destroys their argument if you know how to ask the right questions. There's one other component I wanna talk about, and this comes into kind of a general narrative that goes throughout this, and this is this idea that if you're arguing as a pro-lifer, then you may be pro-birth, but you're not pro-child or you're not pro-life, because you're not concerned with the life of the child After birth, You're not concerned with the hardships of the mother. And this is the part where those of us in the pro-life movement are going to have to make some very serious decisions about what it is we really believe. Because if we do believe that all human life is sacred and has inherent value, then that is not only the child, it is also the mother. If we really believe that we don't punish innocent third parties as a result of the actions of another, then we're gonna to have to actually step up and address the very real concerns that our friends and our neighbors are making on the pro-choice, pro-choice side. And it can be very, very easy to just rest on, the, on your philosophical and moral laurels and say, we've made the argument that this is an innocent human life and you have no right to destroy it, but that doesn't address the real issue that they've brought up, which is what do you do when that young woman that I described at the very beginning of this podcast finds herself in that situation where she does not know what's going to happen next. She doesn't know how her family's going to react. She certainly doesn't know how the father's going to react. She doesn't know any of these things. And and the decision is sitting on her. And she is bearing the weight and the brunt and the responsibility of it. And if we respond in that moment with nothing more than shame and condemnation, then we are every bit as guilty as the clinic she may walk into. And some of us need to acknowledge that I personally will never know what it is like to be that young woman in college with her whole life before her that now is not sure about what her life is going to look like. But I do know what it is like to be her son. And the reason why I personally am so passionate about this issue is not merely out of a desire, a worthy desire to save the child, but it's to save that family. And it's to understand that our obligation has to go beyond simply making a good argument. But actually putting our own time, money, compassion, and empathy where our mouth is when it comes to coming alongside the woman that finds themselves in that situation and her knowing that she has the support necessary to never have to truly consider the alternative. And that doesn't mean that we have to adopt every government program that is then thrown at us, but it does mean that we are going to have to sacrifice on some level, whether it be through volunteering, whether it be through contributing, whether it be through providing a home, whether it be through adoption, we have to be the ones that are the answer to the question that they are posing, which is not sufficiently answered simply by a good argument, but is recognized in a physical and principled and practical outworking of meeting the needs that that woman has in that moment. And if we are truly serious, if we are truly pro-life, and we want to forever put to bed this argument that we only care about the birth, but we don't care about the after effects, then they are going to need to see us live that out in our lives. And there are a number of ways you can do this. And one I just want to mention right now is things like crisis pregnancy centers. That is an easy way for you to be able to demonstrate and to put your values into practical application in a way that will save not only the child, but the mother as well. And I would encourage you to find ways that you can do that, that you can be the answer to that question. I wanna thank you very much for joining us on this episode of Making the Argument. I hope this was helpful for you. I hope this is the sort of episode that you can feel comfortable sharing with somebody that may be on the fence on this issue. And maybe they've heard a lot of bad conservative arguments and you wanna share with them one that you think that will resonate. That was the whole purpose of this episode, was to share an argument that can potentially resonate with someone that is willing to give us a hearing. Thank you very much for joining us and we'll see you next episode.